six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, and a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. What are some things that you hate? <laughs> Early service, someone shouted out the Dallas Cowboys. Can you believe that? <laughs> Unbelievable. Think about, you know, I want to get us in a mindset of like we start to ponder this idea of, hey, what, I mean, we all, we all hate things. I did, as I always try to do some research for you, we share a lot of our hatred. The most hated song of all time, you may know it or not know it, is we built this city on rock and roll by Starship. Do you know that? I kind of like that song. I mean, haters going to hate, right? Uh, the most hated band of all time, uh, Nickelback. <laughs> I know, Creed was like three, number three. Uh, the most hated movie, I've never seen this movie. I like this actor, Adam Sandler, uh, Jack and Jill. Uh, he plays both Jack and Jill. So maybe that's some of the problem. There's, this, there's these awards that are like the opposite of the Oscars called the Razzie Awards for like the worst performances, and it got 12 nominations and won all 12 times. Uh, the actor that has won the most Razzie Awards, so the most, I guess, hated act actor is uh, the Material Girl. Uh, she should stuck stuck with singing, I guess. I don't know, you know. That's the most hated uh, uh, word, you probably know it, uh, you probably don't want me to say it, is uh, this word here. <laughs> I got to say it because of the online crowd. Moist is the word. See, so just like, yeah. I see, Emily, I see you cringing out there. Uh, the most hated noise, they actually went through and did, uh, tested all these noises to see what people hated the most, is a uh, knife against a metal bottle. Or like, you can approximate it with a fork against a glass. That like, you know, I don't know. The most hated uh, restaurant in America is Mickey D's. Which, the irony, because it's also the most popular. <laughs> so is that like the old, is that like a love-hate relationship? Is that, I don't, I don't know what that. Um, the most hated food, they did, they did foods by maps here. And, uh, and so for us, it's bologna, as you can see that. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't, and uh, we got olives, eggplants, beets. I don't know if, I assume you can see this online. Uh, turkey bacon. What's wrong with turkey bacon? I don't know. I just, that was like, so what do you, what do you hate? I, I hate vehicles that go really slow in the passing lane. <laughs> I hate dirty dishes left in the sink. I hate hot weather and men in Speedos. <laughs> I hate uh, decaf coffee because it is not coffee at all. Um, I hate going to the dentist. No offense, uh, Jessica, where are you at? No offense. Uh, and now I officially hate rain. <laughs> it about broke me today. I was expecting, you know, I'm just like, what is this? You know, come Lord Jesus. Uh, we're in a series called The Emotions of God, and we launched it last week. And uh, you can go back and listen to that. I obviously won't go through all the points, but we determined that emotions are a really hard thing to define, even by people who are experts, and we went through some components of emotion. But what our hope and our prayer is in this series is that we get more emotional, not less. We're arguing that emotions are from the Lord, that they're in the Imago Dei, they're part of being uh, followers of Jesus, 
and people that reflect the goodness of God. And yet we often make God into our own image. So we have our emotions that are broken and not, not a right, and we ascribe them to our view of God, and that's really dangerous. So we're trying to flip the script in this series by looking at seven emotions of God and then allowing God to show us how to get emotional. So that's kind of what our, our hopes are uh, for the series. So a couple things going along with the series that complement. We have a big read, so a book we're asking you to read. We actually sold out last week, so that's people still read. Way to go, New Hope. Uh, so we ordered another 100 copies. We are getting them at half price. They'll probably be in tomorrow or the next day. So if you want to stop by during the week, you can. Uh, you can pick up your own copy, or you can wait till next week. Uh, it's a nine-week series, so I really, you know, you can get it next week and still catch up. I've heard from a lot of you. Uh, that it's really been enhancing your relationship with God, and uh, I'm, I'm moved by that. Uh, David Lamb is the author of the book. He's a biblical scholar. Uh, I'll be interviewing him near the end of the series. You can kind of begin collecting your questions. We'll also have a podcast. We've got three Jesus-following therapists uh, that are local. Uh, one of them is my personal therapist, and, and we're gonna be, I'm going to be doing some podcast interviews for them, so we'll let you know when they're out. We've uh, not uh, recorded them yet, but they will be coming uh, to you uh, soon. And then finally, our creative community, which is broad, and many of you are involved. If you're an artist, I encourage you to get involved in our creative community. Two of our members of our creative community are doing an artistic piece throughout the series. You'll get an opportunity to enter into it today. Don't freak out. You're not going to be touching the painting. Don't touch the painting. Uh, but you'll get away. We'll, we'll, we'll describe it to you later, and it will, it will make sense. So um, what are things that we hate? we gotta, we got to really get hone in on this definition of hate because as I tried to illustrate in the opening, we use the word hate in different ways. So we might say something like, I hate to fly. Uh, you may, uh, ha we have things uh, that we, that are truly detestable, that bring great anguish to our life and our world. Uh, cancer has struck our family as it struck many of your families. And I've often heard people say, I hate Cancer. I understand that. Uh, you have these things called hate crimes, where hate is devoted to a certain uh, people group. So we use hate in a broad array. So we, before we talk about the hatred of God, which is our emotion today, we have to hone in on what hate is. So a little, couple definitions. Uh, hate uh, is to feel intense or passionate dislike for. So I actually prefer, uh, instead of saying hate, because I think it has certain connotations, the phrase strongly dislike. I think that's the heart of what hatred is. Wikipedia says hatred is an intense negative emotional response towards certain people, things, or ideas usually related to opposition or revulsion towards something. The etymology of the word really just kind of means enemy. Your enemy, you strongly dislike something and either they or the thing is your enemy. It's used throughout the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures. The word uh, is often used for humans hating others, but it is used of God. And that's where we're kind of devoting our attention, at least in the first part of the sermon today. Here's an example from the Psalms, Psalm 5. This is King David. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogance cannot stand in your presence. You, here's our word, hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, uh, detest. 
So David, uh, who wrote our big read, I think in that chapter, if you read it or you will read it, he does a good job of bringing uh, this idea of the hatred of God to a certain uh, crucial question. How can a God of love also hate? I think that's the thing we got to wrestle with. We see, and I gave you a few examples, I'll give you more. Uh, We see throughout scripture, the writers tell us our God has the emotion of hate. So how can a God of love also hate? That's what we're trying to kind of chase down and go after. What does God hate? That's probably an important distinction. Uh, God hates pride, divorce, robbery, violence, evil, wickedness. Uh, Let's go back to the passage that we read. It's short. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. That's just a poetic device that says this is not an exhaustive list. Here are some things God hates. There's more. Uh, Haughty eyes, which pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in a community. So notice that the, 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 the writer of wisdom literature here is personifying with hands and feet and heart a person. It's kind of building this personification of things that God hates. I want us to, and, and I do this tenderly, because I know as we're in this emotional ser- emotion series, people get emotional. So I want to be kind and gentle in this. But for the sake of the argument today, I want you to enter into some of those things. I want you to feel them in your body. So think of a time that someone, let's say that you cared about, lied to you and deceived you. Think of that time. Just what are you, what are you feeling? I want to be tender, but I want you to experience some of that. Have you ever met someone Uh, that has had a loved one murdered or life unjustly taken. I know I can speak for everyone. It's the horror of seemingly every day now reading another story of children getting gunned down in schools and shot. Can you imagine being their parents? I can't. That. Let's feel that a little bit. Have you ever been... had something robbed or taken from you. I, I took a group of, of students to Colorado. I did every year for a backpacking trip. And we'd always take all of everybody's valuables and put them in one bag. And the church that hosted us would secure that bag. That particular week, it wasn't secure. Somebody that was doing a painting job stole everything. Everybody's wallets, everybody's cash. By the time we had gotten back, they had been hitting up the credit cards for multiple days. So I come back to parental phone calls. And, you know, has that ever happened to you? Have you, uh, have you ever been the victim of gossip? Someone saying something about you that wasn't true and it was malicious and it was mean and it was harmful? Have you ever been uh, the victim of physical violence? Someone's touched you in a physical way that you don't want or abuse. I'm so sorry if you have. Like, do we, do we, I want us to feel these things deeply. God hates all of those things. That's kind of, we can read it, we can listen to someone read a scripture about it, but when we get into living and we experience these things, God hates those things. So I think we gotta, we gotta play out this point more. Uh, and this is what I mean. It, it, we live, this is my contention to you, and I think this is what the writers of scripture tell us. I think this is your experience in living in, in my humble opinion. We live in a world full of sin and evil. If you disagree with that, 
you're going to have a really difficult time understanding a God who hates. I'm just telling you. I'm probably not going to convince you. But if you will grant that, yes, John, we absolutely live in a world of sin and evil, where those dimensions are at play, then I will argue today that a God of hate makes all the sense in the world. Let me work that out a little bit. What do I mean when I say sin? There's many different Greek and Hebrew words used for sin. Two of the most predominant ones are uh, something bent or twisted, or a Greek term, missing the mark. It's an archery term. So we can also understand by sin by thinking about what sin deforms or destroys. Uh, the biblical writers would say it's this concept of shalom. Uh, that's the Hebrew word for peace, but it doesn't just mean peace in kind of our English sense. It is a full-orbed sense of everything being right and good and working the way it should. It's like, Mwah! It's like the perfect moment, like that. We've all had them. We've tasted it. We've like kind of sniffed it in the air a little bit. This said, one day all things will be made right. That's shalom. Sin deforms that. Sin gets into the workings of that and affects it and distorts it and twists it. Cornelius uh, Plantiga, he's a, he's a biblical scholar. He wrote my favorite book on sin. Can you have a favorite book on sin? I don't know. I don't know. But it's about, and he, he simply defines sin as shalom breaking. Or he also says sin is simply not the way things are supposed to be. We know that. Uh, Francis Spufford, he's, a, he's an English writer, kind of a spicy English writer, follower of Jesus. He says uh, sin is the human propensity to mess things up, but he doesn't use the word mess because he's British. So you can fill in the, the, you know, the details there in your own mind. Uh, we live in a world broken by sin. That's what the biblical writers tell us. I think that's our experience as well, I would put forth to you. We also live in a world inundated with evil. The great jesus fine philosopher Dallas Willard says, evil is intense upon the destruction of what is good. That's key. In human life, it becomes ingrained not only in thoughts and images, but also in a person's body and is therefore habitually carried out. Evil springs from self-idolatry and becomes monstrous. And there are instances, because God grants us free will, there are instances that certain humans choose of their own free will to align themselves with evil in such a way that they become agents of evil. And God hates that. Uh, I think everything can go back to a Lord of the Rings illustration, in my humble opinion. Uh, Saruman, if you're, a, if you're a nerdy Lord of the Rings fan, you've seen the movies, uh, he was of the ilk of wizards that Gandalf came from. They were kind of sent from outside Middle-earth to Middle-earth to fight uh, Sauron, who is the incarnation of evil. And it went well for a while. Gandalf always stayed on the true and narrow and was a good wizard, but Saruman, if you've read the books or seen the movies, did not. And at some point, he aligned all of his considerable power with Sauron. And it's an interesting case that you watch him being slowly deformed throughout the three books by evil. As he becomes an agent of evil, God hates that. There is a world of wickedness and evil out there, and God is against that. Again, the psalmist, for you are not a God who's pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. I think there is irrefutable evidence that we live in a world of sin and evil. So I think that makes all the sense 
that uh, we have a God who also hates. And I still haven't convinced you. Let me add one further uh, piece of evidence. My wife and I went to the Holy Land at this time last year, and uh, there's pictures that she took around the back of the room. If you haven't seen those, she took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And that is a trip that got into my body and that like I remember smells and sights and sounds because I had so long to go to the Holy Land. And I'm still like reliving them and Corey's pictures helped me uh, do that. The, the, the part of the trip that I didn't know we were going to do that probably affected me emotionally the most was when we went to Yad Vashem. And that is the Holocaust Museum in uh, Jerusalem. Yad uh, Vashem means in Hebrew, a memorial and a name. It's quoting the prophet Isaiah that I will give them a memorial and a name. So the nation of Israel has built this really beautiful museum uh, to give the people who lost their lives, the six million Jewish people who lost their lives in the Holocaust, that word means burnt offering, a name and a memorial. Also, they've chose to uh, give a name and a memorial to the non-Jewish people that lost their lives or paid considerable cost for protecting Jewish people. They refer to them as the righteous among the nations. And if you never had a chance to go, if you ever do, I, I highly recommend it. it. And yet it was horrible. It was horrible. I, all, all, the whole day on the bus, I was just like, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know. I, I knew it was kind of a waiting and I'm glad I did it. I needed to do it, um, but it was horrible. And then I thought I was kind of done. And then at the end of the trip, we went to the Children's Museum uh, and their uh, memorial, rather. And, uh, and there they memorialized the 1.5 Jewish children that lost their lives in the Holocaust. And it's incredibly beautiful the way they did it and haunting. It's, it's almost pitch black. And you walk through, and you're on this pathway that's barely lit. And they, get, they have like six or seven candles, and they built all these hundreds of mirrors that reflect them. So all you see is pitch black darkness and all these candlelights. They wanted to do it like it was against the black firmament of earth. And then as you're walking through, uh, there's no displays. You're just walking through this pitch black with, with candlelight and then this recording place constantly. And it just says the name of the child, the age they were when they died, and when they died. And it takes three months to play through the recording. Now, when, when we hear this, <laughs> it's really difficult for, for people that I encounter. There's not a lot of them that say we don't have, live in a world of sin and evil. I, I just think that's really, really tough. And my atheist friends, with all due respect, I think have poor answers to something like Yad Vashem. As followers of Jesus, we don't have complete answers. I got a lot of questions, and we're never going to get all of them answered until we're face to face. But we do have an answer. We do have an answer. We have a God who hates that, who hates that, because we have a God who is love. That's our answer. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. I want to kind of bring it together and then talk about how does this affect us the way as I wrestled with this message this week, and I, I hope this will be the hardest one to, to write and preach, it was difficult. Um, the line that I kind of finally came to after days of praying and, and studying is that, that, that God hates because God loves. God hates because God loves. Um, love, as Aquinas said, I think we poorly define love, and that's some of our problem with this question. 
I love Aquinas' definition. Uh, love, Aquinas says, is willing the good of the other. Willing the good of the other. Ponder that a little bit, because it works into this, this argument of why God hates. Um, it's important to note that, that hate is not the opposite of love. Uh, we can come in uh, to people that we love dearly and to relationship with them, and we can strongly dislike what they're doing and still love them. And in fact, I would argue that hate in that way is a facet of love. I don't know how you strongly dislike something uh, or someone that you don't deeply love. Anybody who's ever parented or been around a child would never let a child touch an open flame or chase a ball into a busy road. We just wouldn't do that because we're willing their good. So in this way, hate is really a facet of love. The opposite of hate, as you may have heard before, the opposite of love is not hate, uh, it's indifference. And can you imagine a God uh, who's up in heaven, (laughs) dwelling in heaven, and looks down and sees the mayhem of sin and evil on this earth, something like Yad Vashem, and just turns a blind eye to it? That would be the opposite of love. But the Christian story is that our God, in love... (laughs) came driven by hatred of sin and evil and put on flesh and came to deal with it and to make things right. In this sense, I would say that that hatred is love's response to sin and evil. Uh, Hatred is a righteous reaction to sin and evil. I would say even this way, this is the strongest way I can say it. In a world of sin and evil, if you will grant that, It would be unloving not to hate. And that's the way I understand God's emotion of hate. The writer of Ecclesiastes, it's wisdom literature. You may be familiar with the passage. It says there's a time to do this and a time to do that and a time to do this. And I never noticed before, actually, this message that one of those lines is there's a time to hate. Well, that's interesting. When, When is that time? I think we all bear hate in our bodies. I think we have this emotion. We have things that we strongly dislike and people that we strongly dislike. It's just part of who we are as human. It's not an inherently bad thing, but how do we take that hate as we follow Jesus under the governorship of the Holy Spirit and use our hate redemptively? How do we begin to hate the things that God hates? I think there's a lot at stake in answering that question. So a couple things. Uh, one, uh, and these are, this is tough stuff. I, I understand this tough stuff, but I, 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 I believe what I'm saying. I think that we need to evaluate our hate. When you're feeling it, if it's directed at a certain person or someone, you, it, more and more people we don't even know. We just read an article online or see something, we hate them, and we have all this going on in our bodies. Evaluate it. I, I think most followers of Jesus should do what's called the prayer of examine in, in the way of Jesus at night, that through the power of the Spirit, reflecting on what we're feeling, how we conducted ourselves throughout the day, inviting the Spirit in so we can kind of set our hearts right before we go to bed. Psalm 139, it's probably one of your favorites. If you have a favorite psalm, it's the one like, where can I flee from your presence? You're there. I'll go down to the depths. You're there. We're like, yes, I was knitted together in the, my mother's womb. Yes, it's beautiful. And then, I don't know if you've ever noticed, you, can, you have your Bible, look at it. In verse 19, I don't know what happens, but it takes a dark turn for David. You're like, whoa. I think everybody stops reading at verse 18. And this is where David goes. This is what he says. If only you, God, 
would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, if you're, if you're really with the psalm, you're like, That's, that, that shift is unsettling. And yet, all of us who are honest, I think, feel this way. That's what I love about the psalm. It's our prayer book. This is our prayer book. It's honest, it's real, it's raw, and yet it's so dangerous, even for King David, because he was broken by sin. And I'm broken by sin, and you're broken by sin. I love the quote last week, if you weren't here, if you were, it's a reminder by Anne Lamont that um, we know we have a false image of God if we worship a God who hates all the same people we do. That bears repeating. It's dangerous. And I think we do that often. We take what we're feeling in our hate and we make God into our own image and we ascribe our broken hatred towards the Lord. And it has to be the opposite. God shows us how to get emotional. God shows us the power of the Spirit, how to take the hatred of sin and evil, hopefully, and put it under the governorship of the Holy Spirit and live redemptively to bring shalom to our world. David kind of self-corrects. I don't know. He's just all over the place, this guy. He's an Enneagram 4, I think, if you know the Enneagram. And he, uh, he ends the psalm well. He says, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There it is. We got to evaluate. Oh, come, Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm so scared of what I'm feeling because it's dangerous if it's not aligned with you. So a couple questions. Do we hate what God hates? That's a good evaluative question. We, I've been telling you what God hates. It's right there in Scripture. Like God hates violence and deceit and power plays and manipulation of the most vulnerable and robbery and on and on and on. We've listed them. Does our hate mirror that? Uh, or, or, you know, are we waking up the most saying, like, God hates all those things and that other political party, which is probably the one you don't vote for. Like, I, it's, we're kind of awkwardly laughing, aren't we? Because that's what happens. Is we, take, is we take what clearly God hates the Scripture, and then we start to make God in our own image and ascribe that same level of hate to things that God definitely does not hate. And, and, and it's dangerous. Is that, here's another question. Is our hate rooted in love? It's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, because we've been harmed. Some of you have been traumatized. Like, I'm acknowledging that. I'm not excusing that. But is our hate rooted in eventually by God's grace? Not excusing punishment for people doing wrong, but is it rooted in love? Is it rooted in, in their good eventually? I want to see them experience good. Woo! <laughs> I mean, most, most of mine isn't. Jesus, uh, one of the few times he used this hate, he says, if you're going to follow me and be my followers, people will hate you. All right? Uh, I think what he means is, like, well, they hated him then. Like, we, we read the early Gospels, and he's a rock star, and everybody loves him. That quickly turns. Everybody abandons him. Everybody. And then they kill him because he hated power plays, and he hated misuse of money, and he hated deceit, and he hated religious hypocrisy. So both the Roman government and the religious officials got together to kill him. 
And he says, if you really follow me in a world that doesn't look that much different than my world, people are gonna hate you because you love so radically. <laughs> they won't know what to do with loving your enemy. They won't know what to do. They might kill you. That's why they'll hate you. But here's what I see. I'm not on social media hardly at all. Every once in a while, I kind of go on Twitter and I always regret it. And, uh, and I go on and, and I see some people that I respect, some Jesus followers. And, and they're just kind of saying ridiculous things and being jerks. And then people are calling them out on it. And you kind of follow the conversation. This is where I should just stop reading, but you follow it. And, and then somewhere, like inevitably in the thing, they say, well, I knew this would happen. Jesus said they'd hate me. And I'm like, bro, they hate you because you're being a jerk. <laughs> right? And this is how dangerous it is. Let's not misuse scripture. Let's not get outside of the... The, the example that, that we see in Scripture of God hating sin and evil and calling those of us who follow him by his spirit to hate it also because we love, because we want to see good return to the earth. We want to see all things made right. Secondly, uh, we should evaluate our hate. We should also, it should also cause us to pray it out. We should pray against sin and evil. Again, the Psalms are our prayer book. This, we should be praying out of the Psalms. They show us how to pray. And there are these prayers in the Psalms. We read one earlier from David, at that middle section of Psalm 139. Last week, Raylene read a chunk from Psalm 69. They're called imprecatory prayers. And they're just like heaping insults upon those who would advocate for sin and evil. Sometimes you're like, oh my goodness, I could never, you know. But they're aligning hatred towards sin and evil to protect the most vulnerable to it. And so we keep it all in. And we do, like I talked about last week, we have a Scandinavian God. We don't show our emotions. And we're trying to get you to be more emotional, more emotional. We need to journal out these things. Write an imprecatory prayer of this. Go for it. Your pastor's telling you, just get it out. It'll be healthy for you. I, uh, I, I, I tried to take my own advice, and so I was, I was trying to kind of channel some things that I think God hates in our world. And do you know there's 40 million humans that are enslaved around the world? More so than ever in history. Uh, Six million in sexual slavery. One million children in sexual slavery. Do you hear that? One million. Estimates are in our city of Portland, there's hundreds of children being trafficked for sex. God hates that. We should hate that. And those who perpetuate that and be agents of evil, that is worthy of hate in my opinion. So I wrote a little imprecatory prayer. You guys want to hear it? It's still a work in progress. Lord, uh, stop those who would oppress and abuse children for financial gain. Stop them in their tracks. Heap ruin upon their heads. Break their legs and confuse their minds. May they get trapped and exposed for their evil ways. Imprison them in the darkest and dankest of cells until they come to their senses. And may their flea-bitten beds be drenched with tears. I got a little intense at the end there. <laughs> Whew, I gotta, I gotta get it out like I'm predatory. Thank you, thank you. And then I ended it with the, the words of the martyrs in Revelation, how long, Lord? It's one of the great prayers of the church. And we can pray that. We should be praying that. We look around. Like, if you're troubled by reading your news feed, that's a great prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, or how long, Lord? The martyrs, they had a course in Revelation, those who had given their life for the Lamb. And there's, like, hundreds of thousands of those followers of Jesus doing so today that are part of the church that we should be praying for. And they're singing, how long, Lamb? How long? Jesus is like, I'm going to come. And they're like, how long can we, you know, let's get it going here. 
That's the prayer. Imprecatory prayers. Pray, pray it out. You feeling it? Evaluate it. Pray it out. Join with the chorus of the saints. And then finally, we should not be those people who are just like something horrific happens. They're like, praying for you. We should pray. We should pray. But we should also confront evil. We should confront it. Uh, Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, says that we should resist the devil. I love that word resist because we, in our brokenness, we don't have the strength to resist the devil. We would go down quickly. But as we align ourselves with the Holy Spirit through the victorious work of King Jesus on the cross, we can resist the devil together as a church. It's possible. I, love, I think Paul fleshes this tension out. Uh, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other humans, not against one another. But against, we think these are categories of demonic forces, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. How do we do this? I don't think there's a better illustration than the American Civil Rights Movement. Uh, you probably know this, but most all the leaders, it's hard for me to come up with even one of the leaders that was not a follower of Jesus which is telling many of them were pastors and deacons and elders and leaders in their church. My, one of my favorite ones, and we all know her name because we've gone through school, but I don't think she gets enough publicity, so I want to give her a little bit, is uh, Miss Rosa Parks. So in 1955, <clears throat> December 1st, uh, Rosa worked all day. She was bone tired, and she got on a bus. And... Uh, in Alabama, where she was at, uh, they were in the midst of segregation. So you would get on a bus, and if you were not a white person, you'd be sent to the back of the bus where there was, it was called the colored section. And there was a sign, you had to sit behind it. So Rosa did that, she was used to that, and she went, kind of sat down her there, there's a, a group of them back there. So the bus began to fill with white people, and eventually uh, some white people had to stand. So the bus driver stops the bus and gets up and walks down the aisle and tells Rosa and three others that they needed to get up. He, he even took the sign and moved it back a couple rows. So the, the three of the people just like, okay, whatever, and just got up and moved. Uh, I love this about Rosa. She kind of had fire in her belly. Uh, she stood up and she moved one seat in to get a window. <laughs> she didn't move back. And people are like, what is this? What are you doing? Like, you need to move back. Like, you know, you gotta make space for these, for these white folks who are tired. And she said that day in her autobiographer, you know, read, read about her, she's remarkable. She was a deacon in her church, which is the highest level you get. She carried her Bible everywhere. She said at that moment, she was done. She was just tired. <laughs> she was just like, I'm done with this foolishness. She had too much mayhem, too much violence, too much hate. And she said she didn't want to hurt anybody, but she was going to resist. She was going to take a thing. I'm not doing this anymore. And she said she felt the peace of the Holy Spirit come over her body and the peace of God that gave her confidence in that moment. So the bus driver, according to accounts, got really blustery and loud and started to shout at her and said, uh, you have to get up and move. And she said, no, I will not. No, I will not. And they said, well, you know, I'm going to call the cops and they're going to haul you down to the prison. And she said, sir, you may do so. And historians argue this moment with this woman led by the Holy Spirit was a catalyst for the civil rights movement that rippled across the entire globe. 
We've got to confront evil, but we don't confront it with evil. Paul says in Romans, do not overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with what? Good. And that's the definition of love, isn't it? To will the good of the other. This is how we confront evil. And I'm always honest with you, and this pushes at some of you I know and might push buttons, and I'm okay with it. But it breaks my heart when I look at so much of the American church. And this is, this is what I'm sensing from a lot of leaders that I respect. They're scared. They're fearful. And there's no place for fear for followers of Jesus who have been given all things and our king reigns and will make all things right. I understand it, but there's no place to rally around. It shouldn't be a rallying cry for anyone who follows Jesus. And because they're scared, this is the kind of things I hear coming out of their mouth. Well, we got to fight and we got to fight dirty. And we got to fight with violence if necessary, because so much is at stake. And we got to fight like them if we want to save the church for Christians. That is complete BS. Excuse my, my verbiage. Because here's what we're saying. Here's what we're saying. You're saying when you say that, that our God, who is all good and all love, needs followers who will perpetuate evil to bring kingdom come. That's what we're saying. Do you see how ludicrous that sounds and how small God becomes? <laughs> that is not our God. And if we fight evil with evil, we will saw off the branch we're trying to sit on. Then we're building the future house of whatever the church will be on a foundation that's just riddled with termites. It will come down. We don't have to do that, followers of Jesus. Paul tells us we fight evil with good. We leverage our hate that is against sin and evil, and we do it for the good of others to bring shalom once again to our world, to give people a taste of what it should be and what is coming. Uh, I think that you know, no one that I'm aware of illustrated this like the, like the civil rights movement. Read about it if you're not familiar with it. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who I, I expect all of us know, uh, I... I I hate to read his stuff in some ways because he's so incredibly godly and intelligent and wise and so good with words. I just want to stop preaching when I read his words. So he says it way better than I ever could. He says this, somehow we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match our capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by your unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us and we will still love you. Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. I love this slide. He knew that the old eye for an eye philosophy would leave everyone blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Do something. Just do something, <laughs> followers of Jesus. If you need help, I mean, many of you can come up with things to do in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in your schools and in your workplaces. Go to our justice page. Denise and her team do such a fantastic job partnering with organizations in the city and around the world who are fighting 
of sin and evil. We're committed to that as a church. How could we not be? I'm going this week. I don't even know much details for it, but there's churches coming together and pastors coming together to provide a safe house that I don't even know where it is. They're being super secretive, and I understand it, for victims of trafficking in the city. That's okay. Yeah, amen. I mean, I, didn't, I just was invited to it. They said, we want you as a, as a pastor to come pray, and we want you to know, and we want to work with you. That kind of stuff. I don't know what it is, what's, what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. Be faithful to it. As the famous quote says, no one knows who really said this, but the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is for good people to do nothing. Let's not do nothing. Let's hate well. <laughs> as crazy as that line may sound to you, I hope it sounds better now than when the sermon began. <laughs> I grew up in, in church hearing this line that, that you may have heard before, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. And it's a good line. Uh, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I, I heard it often. I was like, I like that line. I preached it and this and that. A couple of years ago, I honestly can't remember who I heard this from. So it wasn't me. I didn't come up with it. Uh, but they, they turned it in a way that I think is both provocative and more true. And they said, you know, probably a better way to say it is love the sinner and hate your sin. Hate your sin. Because this is what happens, I think, in the best intentions in a group where we're like, let's go get sin and evil. It's out there. And it's the other. It's all out there. And the scriptures tell us, the gospel says, "Uh uh-uh. It's like starts in this guy right here, in in this heart, in this mind. We're not fully redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit. Jesus forgives us. All that's true, but we're still affected by sin. We still have sin corrupting how we live out our lives. And I think a better way of going this is let's, yes, let's fight sin and evil out there. Yes. Well, let's start here. Let's start here. I think that's the best way to carry forth. So we've been trying to do this more and more in our rhythms is uh, create a time of confession. And for a lot of you, are like, oh, shame. It's not shame. We're all so busted up and broken. Me, probably way more than you. You probably don't want to hear that, but that's probably true. It's okay. And, and we're called regularly to confess our sins. It's freedom. It, it reorients us. Jesus was always railing against religious hypocrites who were self-righteous because he said, you're, you know the scriptures like the back of your hand. You pray all the time. You're even generous. You're kind. You're good. And you're so far from God. You're so far from God because you don't see your own brokenness. And the people surrounding Jesus the, the huddled masses who weren't accepted anywhere else but at the feet of Jesus, they were the closest to God. Sin, confession takes us back towards greater intimacy with God. And I think we need to be doing it regularly. It's not about shame. It's about an invitation to come into the light and experience God's grace. So what we want to do is, uh, here's how it's going to go. I always want to make sure you feel prepared. I'm just going to give you in just a minute or two, like a minute of quiet just in this room. And you do whatever you want to do with that in the Holy Spirit. Um, But I'd ask you to rally around this question. Uh, What sin do you hate in your life? I put in parentheses, and it's out there in the world. Of course it is. But in your life, what what sin do you hate? I hate this when I see it. Maybe you won't see it till the minute you begin to pray and the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. And uh, and after we come to the tables to, to find like our, our, our sins wiped clean and we find the, the reality of being made right with a holy God because of Jesus, 
then I want you to go to one of the tables on the right or the left, and there's a table up there, and there's just little pieces of paper. And if you're bold enough, just write what that is. What, what was that answer? I filled up the bowl in the first service, just, just like tons of stuff. And then our artist community is going to incorporate that in the piece of art in, in some way. I don't know how. They're artists. They'll do it. It'll be amazing. Uh, so this is where we participate as God's people. And I think there's tactile ways of responding in a bodily sense that I think is really important to following Jesus. So all that's voluntary. Everything's voluntary here. You can just sit there if you need to sit there. Um, but that's the invitation. Let me, let me read one more quote to kind of get us oriented around this confession piece. Uh, and this is from my, my favorite book on sin, if that's a thing. Uh, I love this quote. Listen, listen. Do you have ears to hear? Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual, central nervous system. What's devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for the wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play the right ones or even recognize them in the performance of others. Eventually, we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and the recapitulation of the main themes God plays in the human life. This is what happens when we don't confess. The music of creation and the still greater music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us. And the idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. The Apostle John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But here's the hope. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God hates because God loves. Hate is a righteous reaction to sin and evil. And thank God he was emotionally moved by it. That he came here and put on flesh and bore my considerable sin and your sin and broke the power of sin and death in a world of sin and evil like, it's loving to hate. And that hatred of God drove God to the cross to forever break it and show us what love looks like. And that's the freedom that we're inviting you into this morning. So I'm just going to give you a minute, and I'll close our time with prayer. Uh, this is between you and the Lord. What, what, do you, what sin do you hate in your life? Talk to Jesus about that. Ask for freedom. Ask for forgiveness. And then we'll come out of that to the tables where we'll experience the feast with God's people, the feast of grace. And, and then you can go and respond artistically as well. Let's pray. God, uh, the scriptures say when your people pray, it's like incense to your nostrils and all these prayers going up and people coming clean and experiencing your grace in a deeper way delights you, God. 
Uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, God, that you're a God who hates sin and evil, confronts sin and evil in me and in us and in the world, and through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit is committed to making all things right, even us. Yeah, come, Lord Jesus. How long, Lord? We pray you'd come soon. Be in our midst, Holy Spirit, if there's continued work that you need to do in our hearts, help us to listen, help us to pay attention, and help us respond to love and love with you and one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you.